0: The text this afternoon comes from the Word of God, as we have it summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 2. And then we can read question and answer 3. From where do you know your sins and misery? The answer, from the law of God. Question four, what does God's law require of us? And the answer, Christ teaches us this in a summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Question five, can you... Can you keep all this perfectly? And the answer, no. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Following the reading of God's word, we'll uh, sing from hymn 11, the stanzas 1, 2, and 9. Sorry, Psalm 116, 1, 4, 9, and 10. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the place and the function of the law has been and still is a controversial topic. There is a whole slew of opinions which all claim to have the Bible on their side. On the one hand, we are told that the law has had its time. With the coming of Christ, it has been swallowed up by the gospel. Did Jesus not fulfill the law, they ask? They can see that there was a need for the law in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament it serves no purpose anymore, they say. For Christians have the Holy Spirit. They are mature. They don't need to be told what or what not to do. Now, it is the law of love that is in force. Love God and the neighbour. That is the only commandment that counts. And On the other hand, there are those who say that the law and the gospel are one. Any difference is a human creation. The Bible is God's word in its totality. We shouldn't create a contrast between law and gospel, but we should stress the unity of the two and their abiding abiding validity. Now this last statement is true. We may not create a contrast, and it is also true that the law is still valid. But what if the Bible itself teaches a difference? What if God's word makes a clear distinction between the two? as it does, for example, in Acts 13, verse 39, where Paul says to the Jews at Antioch as he preaches the word of God to them, through him, that is, Jesus Christ, everyone that believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Did you hear that? We are justified by Christ. Or as you may also say, we are freed by the gospel. We are freed from our sins liberated from the power of the devil and ransomed from our guilt the law could never do that the law was completely powerless to achieve that it is by the gospel of jesus christ that people are justified or set free from the shackles of sin and curse that is why it is so very important that we have a clear understanding of the relationship between the two or else we'll never appreciate the grace of god as we should or else will never esteem the only comfort of which the Catechism sings as we ought to. For in order to cherish comfort, we need to know our misery. And to speak of our only comfort implies that this misery is of such a nature that nothing else is able to overcome and conquer it. Who looks for comfort when everything is just going great? And why speak of the only comfort if we don't know how lost we are, how totally unable to please God and how hemmed in by sin and curse and curse on every side. Reformed Christians who glory in God's grace can easily fall into the danger of minimizing the importance of God's law when they fail to see its proper place in relation to the gospel. And when that happens, all sorts of bad results are inevitable. The worst of them is that our desire for holy living suffers. Then we boast in the gospel, but we don't really know why. Then we cherish God's forgiveness and without a determined effort to eradicate sin in our life. Then we love the doctrines of grace, but fall woefully short in adorning them with godly lifestyle. We should be very thankful that our spiritual forefathers did not fall into this danger. The Catechism confesses the importance of the law. It is an abiding importance, and the Catechism confesses the law's importance as part of our only comfort. For it repeats what the Bible teaches, and so it upholds the law. It glorifies God, and it extols the gospel. For it makes us realize the greatness of God's love and grace in relation to the fact that we are lost in misery and guilt. Light cannot be enjoyed without darkness. Neither can the gospel without the law. The greater the darkness, the more you love the light. And the better we understand the place of God's law in his plan of salvation, the more we we rejoice in our only comfort. I proclaim to you the gospel of Jesus Christ under the heading The Abiding Importance of the Law in its Relation to Our Only Comfort. We will see three things. Firstly, it convicts us of our sins and misery. Secondly, it demands our love and obedience. And thirdly, it Reveals our need for the gospel of Christ Brothers and sisters the contents of Lord's Day 2 is very important Because it is inextricably tied to the only comfort confessed in Lord's Day 1 This comfort is not based on some feelings This comfort is neither passed on by birth But this comfort involves a living faith a faith that wants to know and a faith that wants to grow and therefore a faith that must be founded on the doctrines of the Bible. It begs the question, how is this faith worked? What does God use so that people come to believe in Jesus Christ? How does the Holy Spirit employ the word of God to bring sinners to repentance? He does that first of all, brothers and sisters, by means of God's law. That is what Paul teaches us in Romans seven. For how does he speak about the law? Does he say that the gospel is done away with? Does he downplay its permanent validity and usefulness? No way. Hear him say, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. Do you understand what he's getting at? If it hadn't been for the law, Paul would never have realized his sin, his misery, his lostness. And he goes on and says, For apart from the law, sin is dead. Now, isn't that a strange statement? Is sin ever dead? Has it not been around since the fall as a terribly destructive power? Is it not always at work and constantly alive? How can it ever be dead? For if it is dead, it can obviously not do its evil work either. But Paul does not deny that, brothers and sisters. He does not take issue with the reality that sin has always been alive and active but he is using an exaggerating statement for he wants our attention he wants us to listen well because this is very important what he means is that the law relates what he means is that the law relates to sin as a red flag to a bull the bull may be sound asleep dead to the world so to speak but when he sees that red flag he roars and bristles with anger that is why paul said in verse 5 for when we were controlled by the sinful nature That means when we lived without Christ and the gospel, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. In other words, the law evokes, arouses, and so exposes sin. You can't sin if there is no law, for sin is transgression. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is the opposite of what God demands, and that is why sin is dead when there is no law. But does this help us? How could Paul say, apart from the law, sin is dead? Has there ever been a time that there was no law? Of course not. Even before the fall into sin, God's law was in force. It was not as detailed as later on under Moses, but it was basically no different from it. Adam and Eve knew the will of God, for that is what God's law is, the will of God. They knew that they were to love and obey him, and that disobedience would bring disastrous results. No, Paul uses his words in a relative sense, brothers and sisters. He means that it wasn't until the law convicted him of his sin that he realized his lost condition. The plot only seems to thicken, doesn't it? What does the the Apostle want to teach us here? How can anybody be alive apart from the law? Didn't we hear that the that God's law has been around since the beginning, and didn't Paul write in Romans 5 that death spread to all men because all men sinned in Adam? And didn't Adam transgress, transgress God's law? Is that not the reason we read in Ephesians 2 that all men are by nature dead in their trespasses and sins? How could Paul then ever have been alive at a certain time? How could this meet? How could this man? who was born under the law like all Jews, ever have been without it. That is because the law had not yet convicted him of his sins, brothers and sisters. Paul means that as far as his experience was concerned, he didn't realize his lost and hopeless condition. He didn't have a clue about the depth of his sins and misery. For before before Paul became a Christian, before the Holy Spirit converted him and made him a disciple of Jesus Christ, Paul thought he was doing very well. Of course, he knew the law of God. He had learned it as a little child from his parents and studied it for years at the feet of Gamaliel. But he had never understood it. He was completely in the dark with its primary purpose. It had never affected him in such a way that he cried out for God's mercy and grace. On the contrary, he was quite pleased with himself. Sure, he knew he wasn't perfect, but who is? But God does not expect the impossible, does he? And so, Paul, and so to Paul, religion was a matter of give and take. You do your best, you don't step out of line too much, and you make sure you, you attend to your religious chores, and God will reward you. And sad to say, that is how a lot of people still live. They're religious, you better believe it. They go to church and read the Bible, and they pray, and so on. And when you ask them if they are afraid to die, when you put the question to them whether they're not scared to meet a holy God, they will tell you, why should I? I'm going to heaven, for God loves me. And when you then ask, why does he love you? And why are you going to heaven? They will say, well, I'm a Christian. I lived a fairly good life. I love God, I treat my neighbor well. Why would God not accept me? Ask Paul. For how does he go on? He says, when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. What he means is, when God in his grace opened my eyes for, for my absolute spiritual bankruptcy, I began to see what I had never seen before, the commandment or law in which he had glorified, gloried for years, and of which he thought that its observation observance was to give him everlasting life now achieved the exact opposite for it exposed him as a lost sinner and then not in a superficial manner like most people will agree that they are not perfect no in a profound way that he came to realize that nothing he would ever do would measure up to the perfection and holiness god requires that is why he used the sin of covetousness as an example why not the sin of stealing lying, or sexual immorality, because as a strict Pharisee, Paul had been a model of outward virtue. But covetousness goes deeper. Envy is a matter of the heart. And that is where sin originates, and that is what Paul learned when the Lord enlightened his mind. No longer did he measure religion in terms of give and take. No longer did he trust in his good intentions. No longer did he rely on doing his best. No, he saw that his heart was corrupt. He realized that he was depraved in his very being. He understood that the law in which he had glorified for years had become his accuser. Thinking that he could obtain eternal life by it, it killed him instead. In other words, it made him realize that he stood condemned before a holy God as the vile sinner who has nothing to look forward to but the righteous curse of God. When the commandment came, we read, oh, of course, that commandment or law has, had been there all along, but Paul had never seen it, never seen it as it was supposed to be seen. Don't we sometimes have a similar experience? You have been reading the Bible for years, and then on a certain day, you come across a verse and you say, "Well, oh, I've never seen that before. Of course you have. You may have read it dozens of times, but what you mean is, I've never seen this truth, I've never realized that this was in the Bible, I I never understood what I do now. See, brothers and sisters, as long as the law of God, which is holy and just and good, does not bring us to our knees as long as we boast in it, like Paul used to do, we think we are not too bad. We are doing quite well. As a matter of fact, especially when we compare ourselves to others, But when the Holy Spirit graciously opens our eyes to what the law demands, namely a love for God and the neighbor that must be perfect, we realize the depth of our sin and the hopelessness of our position. And that is why Paul dwells on this topic in such detail. That is why he wants all of us to understand it well, for it is foundational to the Christian faith. It is crucial to the only comfort in life and in death. Sin is such a frightening power and such a sly enemy that it even uses the law of God for its own wicked purposes. For does God's law not promise life? Does the Old Testament not say if Israel observed God's commandments, God's blessings would follow them? Listen to Leviticus 18 verse 5 where God says, Keep my decrees and laws, for the man who obeys them will live by them. But does Paul now contradict that? Why does he say this very commandment, which was intended to bring life, actually brought death? That is because there is a great difference between the Old and the New Testament. That is because the Lord Jesus had not yet come. Sure, God had coupled his blessings to Israel's obedience. In that regard, the law promised life. But it was not because of their obedience, but in the way of it. For their obedience remained far from perfect. Yet God promised to be merciful to them because of the coming Messiah. It was because he could perfectly fulfill the demands of the law by means of his life and death, by means of his sacrifice where God's justice would be satisfied and his curse lifted. That is why Israel had to believe in the promised savior and their faith had to show up in their heartfelt observance of God's law. We should be very thankful that our Catechism faithfully confesses the truth of Scripture. It does not go to the extremes we mentioned in our introduction of letting the Gospel swallow the Law, or of claiming that that there is no difference whatsoever. But it preaches the abiding claims of the Law so that it brings us to the Gospel. The Lord still demands that we keep His commandments. You can't serve Him without His Law. We'll hear more about that in our second point, but we don't serve him as a requirement which earns us salvation, but as proof of our deep thankfulness for our redemption which Christ has obtained. And that is why we must be on the alert. The devil knows how to tempt God's children. He does not say forget about God's lo- God and his law. No, he wants us to think that our covenant membership and some religious duties are enough. Well, Paul begs to differ. Despite his covenant status and his study of the law and religious fervor, he remains a stranger to Christ until the the Lord opened his eyes. Then he looked past the externals and saw himself as he had never seen himself before, as a lost and miserable sinner, deserving of God's curse, completely unable to help himself. The law demands perfection. That is why he cries out, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And that is where he also wants us to arrive, brothers and sisters. Not just once, but time and again. For Paul writes about these matters as a Christian, don't forget. He does not say this only needs to occur once and then you may forget about it. No way. We need the preaching of God's law as long as we live. We need to be convicted of our sin. We need to be confronted with our own absolute lost state. For, or else we'll never glory in our only comfort as we should. Or else our love for Christ will never grow. Or else we'll never take God's commandment seriously in a life of thankfulness. Or else we'll never realize that to be and to remain a Christian, we must constantly appeal to the Lord and His grace. For only then will we live for God's glory. And that brings us to our second point. God's law demands our love and obedience. Easy believism is a danger we should all be concerned about, and it comes in many forms. In the introduction, we mentioned that the place and function of God's law is hotly contested. Many people state that once you believe in Christ, the law no longer has any claim on you. It is not hard to find some texts that seem to back this up. In Romans 7, verse 6, Paul writes that as Christians, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit. See, these people say, can it ever be said any clearer? Christians are discharged, set free from the law, We no longer serve God in the old way of the written code, as they did in the Old Testament, but we serve him in the new way of the Spirit. We are free to do what we like, as long as it is done out of love." But is that what Paul means, brothers and sisters? If he did, he obviously contradicts himself. For in verse 22 of the same chapter, he says, "'For in my inner being I delight in God's law.'" And a little later in verse 25, he adds, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Why delight in God's law when it is no longer in force? Why serve it with your mind when it is finished? No, brothers and sisters, Paul means something totally different. He does not declare the law of God out of date. No, he looks at it with New Testament eyes. He attacks his fellow Jews who who still boasted in the law as if it would give them salvation, and who insisted that if a man was saved by grace alone, he would never produce a godly lifestyle. Grace alone leads to wickedness, they said. And that is how, now precisely what Paul attacks. That is why he uses such strong language. He does not dismiss the law. Release from the law means release from the curse that comes with it. When a person believes in Christ, he no longer stands condemned. The law has no claim on him anymore, because Christ bore that curse for us. and the old written code does not mean that Paul drives a wedge between the written Word of God and the Word of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit. How, how could he ever do that? Does not the same apostle say in 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is inspired by God? And would he now declare a great portion of it no longer valid? Of course not. Unless we want to believe that such contradictions do not affect the truth and reliability of the Bible, we simply must reject this. What Paul means with the old written code is made clear in 2 Corinthians 3. There he takes the Jews to task who refuse to believe in Christ. And he says they have a veil over their eyes whenever they read the Old Covenant. That means the same as the law or their old written code. And why is that so? Because they refuse to turn to the Lord. They stare themselves blind, looking at the letter, but having no eye for the spirit of the law. Only by believing in Christ is this veil taken away. That means only when a person reads the law in the light of its fulfillment in Christ will a man enjoy the new life in the spirit. And what is this new life in the spirit? What else but to love the Lord in obedience? What else but to show him our thankfulness? And can that be done without the law? Does the New Testament teach that the Lord has changed his will? For that is what the law is, brothers and sisters. It is God's will for our life. Does his will ever change? Of course not. What God is looking for today is the same as what he was looking for 2,000 or 4,000 years ago. He wants our love and obedience, and this obedience is prescribed in his law. But our responsibility is much greater than that of the Old Testament church. For Christ has come and his spirit has been poured out. Now we live in the dispensation of the spirit. Now the new covenant has arrived. Now the law is no longer written on stone, but it is written on the hearts of the believers. It is true. Already during the Old Testament that the believers were called to love God and the neighbor with their heart soul and mind Just look at the proof text under answer four But they were still children. They were immature. They were babes and Your expectations of children are nowhere near the same as those of adults Well, that is what the New Testament Church is called. We are no longer children, but adults we know we Sorry We are no longer children but adults, no longer told what to do by hundreds of detailed commandments, but to serve God in the freedom which the Spirit of Christ has ushered in. Yet the basic demand stays the same. Love me with all your heart, soul and mind, and show that love in your obedience to God's law. Christ himself gave us a summary of the law in these words. This is what God is after. He wants your heart and not for 50% or 75%, but for 100%. Millions twist these words of Christ to their own condemnation. Scores of people say, see, it is love that carries the day. This is all God is after, the law is finished. The 10 commandments have had their time. But is that what Christ means, brothers and sisters? Does he say, now you may forget about God's law, all I require is faith in me? No way. Christ did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, says Matthew 5. Sure, he stresses our love. He tells us that without love, we cannot serve God. But he also makes it very clear that this love is revealed in our obedience, an obedience that springs from our heart, an obedience that demands our whole person, but an obedience that does not discount the commands of God. Just read the Sermon on the Mount. It is a terrible heresy that you can be a christian while you disregard god's law it is shocking when people claim to believe while they booze and swear and fornicate that they live a life that it they live a life that is not much different from the way of millions of unbelievers out that millions of unbelievers are living while they soothe their consciences that a man is saved by grace alone also today god's law is still the law of life that is why god gave it to his people just think of its introduction, and that is why we need, it needs to be preached. For God does not change, and neither does his will. He is holy, and so is his law. And that is why he comes to us and to every sinner with that urgent call, give me your heart, love me in obedience, obey my commandments. And how do we react to that urgent call, beloved? And how do we respond to this serious appeal? Do we understand the depth of God's law? Do you realize that unless we give God the perfection he demands, there is no salvation? That is why we must never drop the preaching of God's law. That is why we ought to be so thankful for the scriptural teaching of the catechism. But this is not the end of Lord's Day too, beloved. There is one more question and answer to which we need to give our attention. It seems to get us even further away from the peace of God. But that only seems so brothers and sisters for the lord does not take pleasure in our inability to give him what we owe him no he wants to drive us into the arms of christ he wants us to glory in the gospel and that is our last point the law reveals our need for the gospel of jesus christ the darkness only gets worse the law is unrelenting god does not compromise Love me from the heart. Give me your all. Obey my commandments 100%. But who is able to do that? Who can fulfill these commands? Who serves them in perfection? Nobody. All of us are inclined by nature to hate God and our neighbor. But but does not the Lord know that? Isn't he aware that we stand no chance at all to meet his requirements? Yes, he is aware of that, brothers and sisters very much aware, and that is why we must not interpret the preaching of God's law as a negative matter. The Lord is not out to torture us, for also the proclamation of the law is part of our only comfort. Also, Lord's Day 2 flows out of Lord's Day 1. And that includes this last question and answer, for it is here that we stand eye to eye with our total inability to meet the claims of God. It is here that we realize how deep we have fallen And it is here that we understand why Jesus Christ has had to come. For listen to the Apostle Paul. See how this truth forced itself upon him. It came to him as a Christian. Don't forget, as a man who loves God, but also struggles with his sins. Paul, too, feels so down at times. He wonders whether he'll ever be able to live from the peace which the gospel promises. For when he lets the demand of the law sink into his heart... When he is faced with the holiness of God, when he realizes that nobody will go scot-free before the judgment seat of the Almighty, he is nowhere else to turn but, but to Christ. He can turn nowhere else but to the gospel of grace. And again, brothers and sisters, this isn't a one-time matter. He does not restrict it to the day of his conversion. But this is a truth that applies to every day, caught between two opposites. Involved in a struggle between his old and his new nature, faced with the power of sin and the grace of God, Paul not only calls out, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? No, he goes on and exclaims triumphantly, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the victory song of faith. That is where Paul finds rest, not in himself, not in his good intentions, but in Jesus Christ our only saviour and that is where we must go every time every time again to christ and the gospel of grace oh yes we are christians and we love the lord but we also remain sinners and we transgress god's commandments in so many ways how are we assured of god's love how do we know that he forgives us how can we be absolutely certain that we may live in peace with him not by disregarding the law, not by insisting that it is no longer proclaimed. For without the law, there is no need for the gospel. Without knowing our sins and misery, the only comfort in life and death makes no sense. That is why the law needs to be preached as long as we live, for only then will we understand our need for the gospel. We need to be convicted of our sins during our whole life, or else we'll fall into easy believism. We need to be taught that our love for God must be revealed in loving his commandments or else we are not motivated to live holy lives and we need to be driven into the arms of Christ or else we start to trust in ourselves. For Christ fulfilled all the demands of God's law. He loved his God and his neighbor to perfection. He showed that by his obedience and he did that for us, beloved. He did that for all who trust him. And that is why the curse of the law is gone. And that is why we can live from the only comfort in life and in death, also in the Lord's day too. Amen.